Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the used record store and a healthy aquarium. the seemingly odd connection between the used record store and the used bookstore and a healthy aquarium in part because of the placostomus. I feel that I am actually a cultural placostomus. This first occurred to me more than a year ago when I heard a books you should read episode on simply syndicated.com called smells like a used bookstore in here. That was July 22nd, 2001. If you were looking for the posting of that show at www.simplysyndicated.com, there's still a link to the show on the website there. But the placostomus is this notion of uh, the fish, the algae eating fish that people put often into the aquarium to help keep the aquarium healthy. Because it's nice to have a fish there that's actually going to, um, for its own good purposes, consume things which would be bad or unhealthy for the aquarium environment or for the other fish. I had a roommate once who had a, you know, a real aquarium for the first time. We'd had you know, goldfish in a tank and stuff where uh, newts where you have to change the water on your own very often. But it wasn't really a full-blown aquarium. But when he actually finally got his, one of the first fish he wanted to get was the uh, the sucker fish, the fish that attaches itself to the side of the tank and and again just by living its life cleans out all the old stuff cleans out the junk in other words so with um today or uh, very this weekend being national record store day or actually now international record store day seemed like a good time for me to talk about the used record store now this concept that the uh, third saturday in april is record store day has only been around for a little bit yeah, maybe five years now. I think we're heading up for the fifth celebration of this internationally celebrated day observed on the third Saturday in April. Uh, Record Store Day was founded in 2007 and um, basically is celebrating the independently owned record store. Hundreds of recording artists and other artists participate in a day by making special appearances, special performances, and even issuing special CD releases. This year, according to wikipedia.com, the official ambassador for Record Store Day is Iggy Pop. To me, that's a very appropriate thing. The first time I ever saw an Iggy Pop record was not in a retail record store, but in a used record store. The fifth annual day will include special releases from titles by ABBA, Ryan Adams, Arcade Fire, The Black Keys, Michael Buble, James Brown, David Bowie, Childish Gambino, love that name, The Clash, Leonard Cohen, uh, I could go on and on, many, many more. Um, Ozzy Osbourne, Katy Perry, Fish. When you get to the end of the alphabet, they have the white, the white stripes, Wilco, and Social Distortion. No longer in alphabetical order there. Interesting. So lots of participation in Record Store Day 2012. And if I'm making any contribution to that whatsoever, my contribution is that I want to talk a little bit about music again. I've got a great passion there. And to talk about the used record store. But I think to do it justice, I've got to go back just a little bit further than that and talk about the first time that I encountered rock and roll music, because my parents had a very large record collection. I can remember if you walked into the either one of the houses we lived in when I was a kid, one of the first rooms in the house, so you go in the front, the very first room to the left, for example, was the nice room. 
We called it the living room, which is ironic because we didn't we did very little of our living in that room. It was a uh, a receiving room or a parlor almost. That's where the piano was, um, and that's also where there was a couple of fairly large cabinets. One of these cabinets held sheet music and percussion instruments, and the other cabinet held the records. Now, my parents, I think, did me a tremendous favor um, in contributing to my life by having a variety of music. So to me, it wasn't that strange to have country and bluegrass music mixed in with classical and jazz and world music mixed in with contemporary Christian gospel soundtracks, uh, children's albums, of course, because, you know, I was a very young kid at the time. But even as little as maybe four years old, possibly younger than that, my mom would always tell the story that um, the hardest thing she had to try to accomplish with me was getting me to go outside because unless I was prompted to uh, to go outside or to play in some sort of group activity, I would naturally be the kind of kid if you just gave me full access to the record player and a stack full of albums as tall as I wanted it to be, I was good. You could put me in front of the record player with, with a group of albums and come back three, four hours later, and that's where that's where I would be. So I was remember, familiar with albums pretty pretty young age, but we didn't have a lot of rock and roll albums. You know, probably the closest we would have gotten to rock and roll would have been maybe Johnny Cash or Carl Perkins, some sort of rockabilly, perhaps. But when the 8-track was introduced into our family home by my older brother, that's when we found rock and roll. Now, part of it was the person that he bought the console stereo with the 8-track included from gave him some 8-tracks to go with it. So he started off sort of inheriting 8-tracks from a friend. And among those early 8-tracks was the the soundtrack to the film of Tommy, the uh, uh, great the great Grand Funk Railroads were an American band. I remember that one. And um, Kraftwerk, Audubon. Now today, that might seem like a pretty good range of rock music, right? Uh, um, there's, there's a lot of titles represented there. It's not all the same. Uh, he would later pick up Aerosmith Rocks, and I think I may have told this story before, but the way A-Tracks worked left such an impression on me that whenever I hear the song Combination by Aerosmith, which is one of my favorite Aerosmith songs, I am still to this day part of my subconscious mind, a little bit surprised that the music doesn't fade out at the end of the first verse and then click and then fade back in. Because, you know, the A-track posed a challenge to the music industry. And how do you arrange the songs in a sequence which may not match the album sequence or the cassette tape sequence to avoid as possible having a track split from one track to the other? So songs jumping over tracks was, was a problem, and it did impact my experience of the song Combination by Aerosmith. But in the case of Audubon by Kraftwerk, there's nothing you can do about it. Songs 17, 18 minutes long, there's no way around it you know, branching through one or two or even part of it into the third track of an eight-track tape. And the thing that I remember the most about the soundtrack to Tommy, which we really enjoyed, it was one of our favorites, my brother and I, that uh, remember one Friday night late, maybe it was a Saturday night late. We're in his room. We're listening to Tommy. We're, I don't know, playing game of cards or something. We fell asleep with the eight track still in place. And the, the idea behind eight track tapes was that it was going to be perpetual. It would keep playing and playing and playing. Well, because Tommy was a two record set and a fairly long film soundtrack, the tape itself was maybe just a little bit more thin, uh, a little bit more fragile than, a normal sized release of the time where 
rock albums of that era were 35, 40 minutes long, typically. Um, we woke up to the next day to a, a tape that had basically just snapped. It's, it melted because it had played for nine, ten hours straight. The first two or three of those hours we heard as we listened to the album through a couple of times in entirety. But as we fell asleep, it just kept playing and playing and playing and played until it, the tape broke, as a matter of fact. What is it about the used record store that attracts me, and what does that have to do with 8-track tapes? Well, essentially, the used record store serves one or two major functions that I think are crucial to the, to the health of a record industry. One is a lost leader function, um, introducing people at a cheap price to something that they're going to latch onto and get excited about and then go spend full retail on later. So from a, a retail perspective, the used record store is an entry level for people, and that's very good. But the other thing that it does is it helps clean up the mess when a trend changes or when something that is popular or perceived to be potentially popular falls completely off the map. It's a way of getting rid of the dreck, in other words. So this doesn't necessarily mean that the albums that uh, eventually get sold off for a dollar or in today's world, the CD used CD store with its dollar bin doesn't necessarily mean that everything in the dollar bin is dreck. Um, I've said so far about the uh, recent Grammy-winning artist Adele that I'm going to hold off. I don't have any of her CDs right now. I haven't downloaded the MP3s. But I feel like if I just wait a couple of more months, that I should be able to pick up a $5 copy of every album she's made, maybe even a $2 copy of every album she's made, as the influx of people who've picked up her music following her you know, spectacular Grammy Award performance whittles its way into people who've decided they don't really like it after all. And what do they do with it? Well, they get rid of it by trading it to a used record store or putting it in a garage sale, or at some point it shows up as a used purchase. Now, this isn't necessarily ideal for the artist. The artist doesn't, you know, get to re-up their royalties on the albums that don't get sold new, but that instead get sold used. But at the same time, the market has to do something with with that music. It's got to do something with that inventory, right? So the other lost leader element, there's really a couple of them, but the one that I want to talk about with eight track tapes is sort of the cutout market. The other one besides cutout is the record club market. Both of those are ways of trying to move inventory through a system before that inventory becomes dead weight. So in the record club model, the record label itself is producing what's essentially, um, catering to a used store client. And in the lost leader model, the record store is marking itself down, turning it into a cutout release. Uh, in the album world, it was literally called cutouts because they'd put a little cut in the corner, one of the corners of the album cover, not harming the vinyl in any way, but putting a little note saying, hey, this wasn't bought at full price. This wasn't a retail release. This was a closeout sale. And with 8-track, sometimes that would actually be a, a hole in one of the corners of the 8-track, um, usually through where the barcode was. Again, not damaging the tape or the mechanical functioning of the, of the tape itself, but putting something in there that the record label would know, hey, we didn't sell this to a retailer at full price. This is something we were trying to get rid of, in other words. I can remember with the family. Now, beginning to get comfortable with this 8-track technology, we didn't have it in the cars, but we had it in the home. And one day on a trip back from visiting my grandmother's house, so we're making a five and a half hour drive, looking for a place to stop along the way to break the monotony of the car ride up, grab a bite to eat and whatever. And we stopped at this local department store somewhere in, I'm going to guess Arkansas, but somewhere like that. And 
they had a sale. Uh, it was like you know, $1 8-track tapes or 6 for $5 or something like that. Just sort of a clearance sale with a staggering amount of inventory. Now, to me, 8-tracks were not that common. By the time we'd become aware of them, they had already begun to fade out. Um, my brother bought a bought an eight track player or a you know a, a music system with an eight track player in it because somebody was getting rid of it. They were trading up to audio cassette or committing fully to vinyl album instead. But there must have been a couple of thousand eight track tapes on sale, and for that reason, you know, my parents said, "Hey, you know, these are." Actually, they're less than a dollar if we buy what we want. So my parents were buying you know, instrumental soundtrack type stuff. My dad might have thrown in a couple of country titles. But me and my siblings were looking more for, you know, for pop and for rock. And I remember buying uh, <clears throat> Rainbow um, on stage was the, name of the, was the name of the album in a track tape. Again, another good example. Very long songs, live in concert, Richie Blackmore playing guitar, Ronnie James D you know, doing the vocal. With extended versions of cuts like Man on the Silver Mountain and Still I'm Sad. And that was that was probably the hardest rock album that we had in our house maybe at that time. This was before I'd bought my first Led Zeppelin album, my first Black Sabbath album. And it certainly upstaged where we were from a hard rock perspective. It, it, it upstaged Grand Funk Railroad by a fair amount. And um, other things I found, it wasn't Uriah Heep, but it was Ken Hensley, one of the singer-songwriters for Uriah Heep, got two of his solo albums, both of which I really enjoy and have later found on MP3 to you know, kind of move into the modern era. So getting, getting rock and roll music that way, and why was, a, why was I so comfortable with that? Why was it, I guess I've met people who, if you said, here's a, a boatload of, of music that the record label doesn't want anymore. It's either they don't want the format of 8-track or they don't even want the artist anymore. Because, again, you, you just don't run into solo albums by Ken Hensley very often. It's not an easy find. You have to look for it if you want to find it. And for a lot of people, they, they would turn their nose at that and say, you know what, I really only want what's popular. I want what, what's top 40, what's playing on the radio right now. I want to buy the music that the record label's committed to. I don't want to buy the music that the record label is trying to get rid of. So... I was really comfortable with this idea of combing through a bunch of releases and trying to find something interesting and new and different, primarily because of my experience in the used record store. Now, when I was a kid, we had really your, your sort of classic American neighborhood model, right? So um, in, a, in a square half-mile block, there were a lot of houses of very similar um, size for families with very similar income basis. Now, whether they worked in a medical field or in a manufacturing field or as teachers or what have you, we all kind of were in the same sort of class bracket, for want of a better word. And we were in a neighborhood where without crossing a major street, without dealing with the kind of street that um, you'd have to use a, a stoplight or a crossing guard to help you, you know, if you were trying to go to school, we had our school inside the neighborhood. So we didn't have to to cross any four-lane road or any major major uh, intersection to get to school or to get to church for the most part. So it was not unusual for me as a kid to wake up on a Saturday morning, hop on my bike, and as long as I stayed inside this neighborhood, I was good. You know, my parents weren't worried about it. And I remember there being a couple of big hills where I sometimes I was a little bit worried that on my own, 
if I just let my bicycle do whatever it would, I'd be going faster than the cars are allowed to go, easily faster than the cars are allowed to go. And so you kind of had to you had to use good common sense. It wasn't just uh, a perfectly safe environment for a kid to ride around in. But the one thing I liked is that without, again, without crossing one of these major intersections, as a very young kid, the mission was to drive drive the bike like you were going to school, navigate up a fairly steep hill, um, and then from the top of that hill, you could go down the sidewalk and get to a, a convenience store, a place that sold um, candy and gum and pop and things of that nature. And if you were saving up your money all week from an allowance or whatever you might receive, you were probably saving it up toward going and buying a, you know, a Pepsi or a Coke or buying a candy bar. But that was before the used record store moved in. When the used record store moved in, then it became about saving up money to go and look at and buy albums. And the thing about the used record store that was so interesting to me was that it was more interesting that these weren't brand new. There was nothing sterile about the environment. You're looking at albums that somebody else has bought, that somebody else has played, that may have changed hands two or three times. And like Kennedy Gordon mentioned on the Books You Should Read episode, there's a certain smell about a used bookstore or a used record store. There's something there's something in the atmosphere. It's not just the sense of smell. There's a there's almost a a sense of feel. There's more than just a look going on there in terms of you know you're in this environment that is first off unique to this sort of placostomous type setting where you're going to come in as the bottom feeder of the culture and pick up the things that other people have discarded. And it's true no matter what market I've been in. Whenever I go to a city, if I get to stay for a while, one of the things I like is saying, hey, let's find out the find out where the used record stores are. Or now, of course, use CD stores. But even in the used CD era, you still have that same smell. So this isn't about cardboard, and it's not about vague hints of mold or anything of that nature. Because it's true even where the primary product line is basically made up of plastic. And, um, you know, compact disc being you know, a very different animal than vinyl, right? But there's still that vibe. There's still that thing in the air. And I can remember some of the used record stores that I enjoyed visiting the most having no alphabet. Now, having no alphabet to speak of, or having one big alphabet, probably is a better way to put it, not being cordoned off by genre. So if you're looking in the A's, you could be looking for uh, Aerosmith or ABBA at the same time that you could be looking for any other artist that has an A in the name. I used to joke that in my record collection, there was no... There's no genre distinction in the way I put my albums together or my CDs together. You're going to find um, Bach and Black Sabbath, you know, sitting side by side with one another. You're going to find Harry Chapin, Johnny Cash right there um, next to, you know, Holly Cole or, or John Coltrane. The, the alphabet was one seamless A to Z, but that makes it a little bit more difficult as a shopper because if you're going in and you're trying to find just one thing, you're hoping you can pick up a, a vinyl 12-inch copy of Skinny Puppy. It'd be very helpful if the, if the uh, record store had already organized an industrial rock section where you could go straight to where you're most likely to find them. But uh, I really enjoyed those times when I was combing through things where you didn't you never know what you were going to get because it was consistent with my experience as a kid coming through my parents' albums where my parents truly didn't even have an alphabet. They had no alphabet. They had no genre. There might have been a little bit of a divide where all the kids' stuff was kind of on the left and the stuff that wasn't for the kids was kind of on the right. But short of maybe dividing by age appropriateness, they were all over the map. And my um, 
my experience in stores was consistent with that, and that's kind of the way I've modeled my own collection today. But you can't just – I don't think you can do one of those stores justice in just five or ten minutes. And like my mom commenting that if you gave me a good record player and a stack full of albums, you could keep me entertained for hours. Likewise, if you wanted to go shopping – if you were a mom and you wanted to go clothes shopping or something in multiple stores where I can remember distinctly being one of those kids who – by the time you get to maybe to the third store and either your mother or your sisters or your brother, somebody's trying on clothes and it's not about you because you've personally made the whole shopping experience painful and difficult for everybody. They don't want it to be about you. I can remember being that kid laying flat on my back on the linoleum floor, staring up at the fluorescent lights and refusing to move, just paralyzed by how painful the experience of family shopping could be. But if there was a used record store, in that mall or in that shopping center or even right across the street, then, I, you know, drop me and my brother off, come back for us an hour later. We're not going to be done yet, especially if it was one of those used record stores where there's no alphabet. And this is, again, one of these places where that, that books you should read episode kind of called out to my mind that, yeah, I'm the same way in a bookstore, too. If it's a good used bookstore, if it's a bookstore with a lot of history and a lot of sense of history and you're literally combing through titles with no limitation based on whether publications are in print or not. The whole question of being in print or out of print goes right out the window. And you're looking at the history of book publishing, potentially. Or in the record store, you're looking at the, the history of rock and roll could be on that shelf. Because anything could be one flick of the finger away in the next album. And I'm not even one of those people who gets crazy about collectibles. I'm not the kind of guy who, if I find a great, a great, good-looking condition of the Beatles' White Album, gets obsessed with knowing what color the vinyl is. I'm more the guy who wants to make sure that the vinyl's in good shape and the album's not warped. But it adds a whole other level uh, if you're one of those collector-type people where you're less interested in the actual music that the Rolling Stones recorded on the album Some Girls and more interested in whether the version of the album Some Girls you're looking at has celebrity women on the cover and not just generic women on the cover. It takes it to a whole new level if you're actually one of those people who's interested in which pressing of the album it is. I was always, it was always enough for me if it was a, if it was a, good, a good clean version, a good quality um, nice version of it didn't have to be mint condition just had to be you know better than fair i guess would be what i was looking for but then again depending on the album i was more than willing to take fair condition home with me you give me a good price on a record i can't find anywhere else and fair condition's probably fine i mean i'd be thrilled about it but it's probably fine i remember the first copy that i had on vinyl of tom waits nighthawks at the diner was it was an abysmal condition. I believe the guy who sold it to me actually made the comment that he felt bad even charging me a dollar for it. I should just take it because the album wasn't fit to be used as home plate in a pickup baseball game or a pickup wiffle ball game that afternoon. And when I put it on the turntable, <laughs> he was certainly right. It was a warped album. It was a scratched album. And even in places where there were no scratches or skiffs, it was crackly. But you know what? There's something really funny about Nighthawks at the Diner by Tom Waits that in some ways that sort of crackly, you know, weather-worn, weather-beaten kind of piece of vinyl was almost appropriate for the vibe and the shtick that Waits had going 
all the way through that live performance where he is basically at the last chance saloon talking to people who are even further down the line at the end of their rope than he is as a singer. And, you know, he's singing to people for whom, you know, a dirge about warm beer and cold women makes total sense. They've been there. They've done that. And they probably wore the T-shirt to the show. So, yeah, I've I've bought bad condition albums before. And sometimes I've been I've done it because yeah I was, uh, you know, you saved all your pennies and that's the best price you're going to get. And in some cases, it's a rare enough album or an album that I'm not finding anywhere else that. Well, you take best available, just like a uh, just like an NFL team in the seventh round of the draft. At some point, you're no longer looking for wide receivers anymore. You're at the very end of the draft. You're taking whoever you think has any shot of making your special teams or your practice squad. And I treated I treated music the same way. The tricky thing for me was that this used record store, like the convenience store, was at the top of a hill. So you go, you saved up five ten dollars. Five ten dollars at a used record store, depending on how you handle it, you could leave with five or six or seven albums. Um, how many things are you buying from the dollar bin, and how many things are you buying that are fairly new? Now, I wasn't buying any new releases, any perfect mint copies of anything rare, so I was always leaving with more than one record. But you'd have this, you know, this twelve by twelve package of of albums, where an album much bigger than a CD, much you know, not the kind of thing you're gonna you're gonna be able to just you know, stuff in your pants or something like that. This is a, a fairly big package of something that even if it was cheap when you bought it is still valuable to you. And I still have to get this uh, this one-speed bike of mine to behave itself going down a hill that's steep enough that, again, on my own, I might be hitting 30, 35 miles an hour um, trying to control the bike, trying to control the albums. And the one way to manage the hill the best was actually to leave the used record store and jog over one or two blocks and instead of going down the street that was right next to where the used record store was, where the hill was actually its steepest, was to go down a street a couple blocks down where the hill wasn't quite so steep. Either one of them was going to let me off on the road that was going to take me through the neighborhood to my house. But the street that I think had the best you know, driving situation from a, you know, a bicycling perspective had the dog. Now, I own dogs. I've, I've had a couple of dogs in my lifetime that I actually have had a wonderful relationship with. I, I don't have anything against dogs. And even as a little kid, I you know had great affection for animals. We'd owned a dog. We'd owned several cats. But um, this dog, and I don't even think this dog was unfriendly or meant me harm. But if you were driving down the road and trying to be on the right side of the road, trying to obey the laws of the road, and the right side of the road was the side of the road that this house was on that this dog lived in, if you didn't drive down the middle of the road or over on the quote-unquote wrong side of the road, this dog would get a little territorial on you and assume that you were, you know, you were encroaching upon his territory. And as a little kid, this is the era before the invisible fence. So if the dog's not on a leash and not on a chain, it's free to go wherever it feels like. And the faster you were going on your bike, the more interested the dog became. It took me a long time to figure out that the best way to handle Billy's dog, owned by a guy named Billy, um was to actually slow down and sort of almost walk my bike past. So if the dog wanted to come over and say hello, you could pet it, you could say hello. But earlier when I was, you know, younger, didn't really know whose dog it was, hadn't uh, established any sort of relationship in that part of the neighborhood. My theory was the faster I go, the better off I'll be. But the problem was the faster I went, the more of a target I became for the, you know, fairly big, um, the fairly big dog, sort of a, Retriever setter mix. So you almost have to picture me 
trying to hold handlebar with each hand. My right hand has a bag with albums in it, sort of dangling off, you know, swinging in the in the breeze or in the the, the front wind, going at least thirty miles an hour down this hill. <clears throat> Big Doug chasing me the whole way. Um, perhaps in my mind, nipping at my heels, although perhaps not really nipping at my heels, probably being friendly, but scaring the heck out of me. And ended up, you know, you get close to the bottom of the hill, close to the point where you're, you're beginning to slow down because of the momentum wiping out. Um, not only am I landing on my tush, but my copy of ZZ Top's tush is landing on its tush as well. That sort of complete spin out. And again, it took a while to figure out that if I wanted to go that route, I need to figure out how to how to make friends with this dog along the way, because in the early in the early days of my experience as a customer of a used record store, it was all bicycle travel. I mean, I was too young to drive and perhaps even, you know, not often getting a ride at this point in time. When we moved from one house to the other, there were at least a couple of years that went by where driving from one side of the town all the way to the other, going from the south side to the east side. For the purposes of visiting a used record store was the kind of thing that my I'm sure my parents and my older brother only had very limited amount of patience for. My older sister had even less patience for it. But it was too far of a journey to do on bicycle. Uh, at, the, at that point, we're talking about an 8 or 9 or 10 mile difference, if I were guessing, perhaps even further. So it wasn't until the time that I was actually a, able to legally drive on my own that I was once again able to hit the used record stores. And of course, by then... I may have enough disposable income that I could afford to buy music new and I would buy music new, but I wouldn't buy anything new if I could find a copy of it used. And again, that's so for some people that's got to be very odd because I think for a lot of people it'd be the opposite. If you had enough money to buy a new CD of everything, why in the world would you spend the time and effort to get a used copy, especially if there might be something wrong with it? It might, you know, it's just not yours, right? It's a hand me down. But I see value in being that customer who is engaging in the art of cleaning up the tank, the things that have slipped through enough fingers to where if I didn't buy this CD brand new because I didn't value it at you know full price and I didn't value it at $7 or $5 or $2, but it gets to be $1, it's, a, it's another economic question at that point. And the fact is, if there's only one song on the album that I like and the rest of the album, I don't like at all because it's one of those, you know, one of those situations that you, you get into a lot. I think, especially in the nineties, you'd see that a lot in the record industry, but there'd be the, the one song and the rest of the album wouldn't sound like that one song at all. Um, well, that's not worth $5 to me. It's not worth the price of a CD single to me. But if I find that same album later for a dollar, well, I'm, I'm back to being really interested again. I've always had good relationships with the people who have managed these used record stores. Initially, I did as a customer, and a lot of them were, you got the vibe from these guys that they, they just decided the time, to follow, the time to follow the Grateful Dead had passed them, that they were no longer interested in touring the country and going wherever the dead shows were. That's sort of the, the groove. In fact, one of the guys you know, could have been a double for, for Jerry Garcia in my mind. Anyway, I made this very young age. Uh, later on when I got to familiarize myself with who the Grateful Dead were and what they looked like, uh, I sort of supplanted my memory of this used record store owner with Jerry Garcia could have been the same guy. Right. And then in college, a guy really liked, uh, again, one of those, you know, aging hippie type fellows 
easygoing, easy to get along with, knew his music history, but was all also willing to learn. If you knew something about a record he didn't know, he didn't get defensive about it, he didn't cop an attitude about it. And if he knew that you liked something and you knew what you liked, he'd keep an eye out for it. And it wasn't unusual for me to come into the record store and him to pull out a two or three pieces of vinyl he hadn't put on the shelf yet because he wanted me to see it before he showed it to everybody else. And and that was that was awfully cool of him. In fact, I want to get to one of those exactly one of those experiences here in a little bit because when we had our different drummer today we're hitting a different drummer than i met through the used record store uh, or at least through that used record store experience and going from one album by this band to a lot of albums by this band has a lot to do with this this uh record store in my college town and what a good relationship i had with the guy who ran that record store but even when i was old enough to be running my own record store and i was on the retail side of the chain inside the mall doing the front end of the uh, supply chain for putting music as um, art into the commerce realm. I still had a great relationship with the guy who owned two or three of the used record stores in that city. By then, you began to see used record store being a business, being a chain. Computerization had hit the point where it was possible for the owner of a used record store to understand his inventory, to catalog things as they came in. And you could now, today, I could walk into one of the used record stores that I, I go to today and ask if they have a CD by one particular artist. And they can tell me whether they should have it on the shelf, what price range it should be in. Is it in the regular price stuff? Is it down in the dollar stuff somewhere? Or if there's another store in town that has it, in which location that is. But this was at the onset of that, and they were just beginning to get a grip on their inventory. His record store in that city was the place where I found Deaf School live in concert. I'm a big Deaf School fan. I have probably bought from used record stores more 25, 50, and 50 cent and $1 copies of Deaf School's Second Honeymoon and uh, Don't Stop the World. The two record set U.S. edition, Gatefold, Warner Brothers um, release, then I can count. I'm telling you it would not shock me if I bought 50 or 100 copies of that Lost Leader along the way, almost all of which I've turned and given away to people. I still would venture to guess that I have more than one vinyl copy downstairs right now in my house that I guarantee I have at least one, but I don't know whether I've cut myself down to just having two or whether I'm just down to the last one. I know for a while I had three copies because it's one of those things. I'm a better evangelist for this music than that used record store is going to be. I know who deaf school is, but the first time I saw their second coming live CD, an album made 10 years after they broke up as sort of a reunion tour type show. It was in a used record store in this medium-sized city. Now, why would I, as somebody who runs a record store, not just order this for myself? Do myself the benefit of recording a sale in my own store? Was it price-driven? No. I spent probably higher than your average used CD price for that particular disc. The reason was I couldn't order it myself because it was no longer available. It had come and gone from availability so quickly that it wasn't at the time available for me to place a special order. So the only way I was going to get this is if it popped up in the used record store, if it showed up in that part of the tank. Now, any time today that I, I get interested in something, this line between DVD and Blu-ray, where I'm still on the DVD side of things, um, part of the reason is that I'm not that interested in Blu-ray yet because I haven't seen Blu-ray fill the aquarium just yet. I need to see more things showing up as lost leaders, showing up in record clubs or movie clubs with offers, and showing up in the used record store where the selection available used is strong enough. The appearance of an album 
on the shelf of a used record store is not a sign that there's something wrong. It's actually a sign that the industry has now grown fully to where its supply chain is in every way, end to end. And I, for one, am very comfortable being on the placostomous side of that supply chain. I am, because I always have been. Hi there, this is Stu the Beard Perry entreating you to please listen to our show for those about to rock on simplysyndicated.com. Please listen to our show, please! Today's different drummer is Mark E. Smith of The Fall, or perhaps I should say, Marka Ia smith of The Fall. Now, The Fall makes sense here. The first time I ever bought an album by The Fall was in a used record store. So uh, Smith is a great candidate for different drummer on this particular topic. But I will tell you that even though I've had a lot of musicians pop up here lately as different drummers, they've all popped up because of the relationship they have with the topic more than anything else. It's literally... They're the right different drummer for this topic. Therefore, I'll bring them up here. But Mark E. Smith is a much bigger deal to me than that. Uh, he is, you know, a different drummer in every sense of the word and would have fit in anywhere on any topic I wanted. I just held off until now to speak about him and his band, The Fall, in this context of, of a music-oriented show. So I've got a show here that's all about music, especially about used music. And it just makes sense to take advantage of this opportunity to speak about the band, the fall. Now, if you think from an American perspective, instead of this post-punk group from England, the question that I've always asked people is, can you think of an American rock and roll band that has been together since roughly 1977 and has been together as a band that whole time with at least one common member, you know, at least the lead singer as a common member or the principal songwriter as a common member? And can you think of any other group in America that has done that and put out pretty consistently an album a year of that whole time, whether that be a greatest hits collection, a set of outtakes, uh, a quick cobbled together sort of box set of, of uh, 12 inch single releases or B sides or what have you, or a new studio album with or without massive changes in lineups. So it doesn't really matter to me how consistent the lineup is. It's enough to say, I can point to this entity and say, you're a group of musicians You've been together this whole time, and you've been consistently releasing material this whole time. And I'm inclined to say that the answer is no. That maybe not just in U.S. history or in the English-speaking world, but maybe nowhere in rock history is there another band like The Fall. Mark Edward Smith is the lead singer, lyricist, uh, frontman, and really the, 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 body and, the heart and body and soul of the band The Fall. They uh, formed as a group when he was about 19 years old after dropping out of college, and their first output came in 1977. If you take a quick look at the full discography, the first you know, full-length album came in 1979, Live at the Witch Trials, and they have put out album after album along the way, up to and including one just uh, in late 2011. It would be foolish to assume there were, that they won't make an album later this year. The smart money is in the fall releasing an album in 2012. The best I could come up with for an American comparison, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. 
you need to include Full Moon Fever as Tom Petty's solo album as part of that mix. Because again, the only common member in the fall through this entire lifespan of the band is Mark E. Smith. And Tom Petty has probably done a better job consistently collaborating with a set of musicians, even if they've come and go. Um, they probably come back more often to Petty. But I don't believe that Tom Petty has released an album a year, every year along the way. He has an incredible output, and his box set speaks to that. But The Fall has a much more ragged and jagged, jangly discography, not to mention their sound. And so the first thing that jumps out at me about this band is their unbelievable longevity. But you know what? Because of my experience as a customer in used record stores, I was into The Fall before The Fall had established any such longevity. They released their first album internationally, probably 1980. 79 was when Live at the Witch Trials and Dragnet both came out in England. But I don't believe that they crossed the pond right away. And one of the things that you find is if you look at the original British release of Live at the Witch Trials, it's a different cover. <clears throat> I'm remembering being the kid in the used record store, flipping through the dollar section of stuff that the even the record store owner himself wasn't all that committed to, didn't really know what he wanted to do with, and looking and saying, this is an interesting album. It was a basically red cover with a black inset of sort of a, a snapshot of the band performing and with sort of cut out lettering, The Fall, the name of the band, Live at the Witch Trials. And you flip over on the back, the song sequence wasn't the same for this U.S. release as it was for the original British release. So I had that the red album is the one that I got. And I thought to myself, well, one dollar, you know, why not give it a shot? It has interesting album it's an interesting album cover. It's got interesting titles, Underground Medicine, uh, Live at the Witch Trials, No Christmas for John Kay's. Um, so the stuff that I, I thought, well, I'll give this a shot. I also liked the fact that the songs had different lengths, that they were both very short songs and very long songs. And for most of the time that I owned this album, I'm literally saying from maybe early 1982, 81, 82, somewhere in that ballpark, all the way until about maybe six years ago, I believed it was not the first album by the band. There was not enough information in America. So whenever I would go and find the fall, whether full price in a very large megastore, like the Tower Record Store on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, where there'd be a lot of albums to pick from, or in any used record store I've been in, I've always sort of grabbed the music by the fall, flipped it over to try to look at the release date, and I've always expected to find something before 79. Now, their output before 1979 was um, live bootleg sort of things that were actually released later, but there were concerts from 77 and in that ballpark. And I did actually find an album that was like early singles um, that was you know, before 1979 and branching through 1979. But again, on a full-length album, I didn't know that that $1 purchase at that used record store years and years ago was actually the very first album by the fall because it had a song on it called crap rap Two, I like to blow. And my thought was that if there's a song called crap rap Two, there probably is a crap rap one, right? And that if number two has been released on vinyl, number one came out on vinyl first, but that actually wasn't the case. I was fooled by the way the fall names their titles. So what's the nature of my commitment to the band as a fan? The fall holds the number one spot by a good long mile on the number of songs on my MP3 player. Right now, just quickly glancing over, 
257 songs by the fall out of the granted more than 10,000 songs that I carry on a, on a daily basis. But 257 songs is quite a lot branching over something like 36 albums. Now there's no real way to understand the fall by looking at MP3 files on iTunes or anywhere else to understand the fall. You almost have to, to make a distinction between um, full length, regular releases versus um, sort of yeah, bootleg or one-off sort of releases. But if I just quickly scan through what I would call the regular releases, and the things that aren't necessarily bootlegs or uh, collections of B-sides or samplers, I get more than 45 albums since 1977. More than 45 albums by the fall, and I own at least 21 of them. And, again, according to, according to my uh, Zune network directory, I've got 36 of them. So quickly, just sort of say, well, how would you, how would you dip your, your foot into the fall? Where would you go? Well, if you wanted to give the fall a try, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cite a couple of albums, maybe three albums, and say, here are good places where I feel good jumping in. Live at, the, Live at the Witch Trials, of course, it's the first one. It's a time capsule experience. You're going all the way back to the 1970s, but you're starting where I would have started. Then you have um, This Nation's Saving Grace was probably the album when the entire world started to say, yeah, this is an important band. A consensus had developed that, that even though they were never going to be a, a hit maker, per se, that they had become significant, for want of a better word. On a minor note, I kind of like the album Extricate as well. It's one of those Leonard Cohen type things where if you've um, divorced your wife, broken up the band, reinvented it, and there's a lot of a lot of anger, a lot of sadness, a lot of spite going on there. The songwriting tends to be pretty good in those situations, and um, you know Leonard Cohen has spoken about it before jokingly. And I don't you know give Marky e. Smith the credit for those kind of songwriting chops, but it's a good album from that perspective. Most recently, the one that I, I like the most of the most recent output is actually um, just called the Real New Fall LP, formerly Country on the Click. And if I have time, I'll get to the story behind that a little bit as we go. So jumping in on any one of those places is a pretty good place to, to try out the fall. But if I wanted to look at the 257 songs that I have, sort of organized by album, I think I may just drop a few song names out there. Not... Uh, not making a playlist like I did for Todd Snyder. Nothing as formal as that, but just kind of scrolling through and, and calling stuff out. So I'm going to do it in alphabetical order of the album names that I have in my directory. And the first one that I'd like to talk to you alphabetically is Cerebral Caustic, where the studio version of The Joke is really a great track, not one to miss, and Feeling Numb. Or on the bonus CD for the two-disc set of Cerebral Caustic, Numb at the Lodge is just as good. And there's something ironically wonderful about their Christmas version of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that if you know Marky e. Smith and his sort of talking, almost um, stroke patient sort of vocal styling, having him essentially read the lyrics of the Charles Wesley hymn through uh, with over-the-top Brick Smith chorus singing, it's, it's just a wonderful mess. Just a wonderful mess. One of the albums that I did by full retail price via special order when I was in the record store was called the collection by the fall. It was just a you know hodgepodge of things on one of the record labels. And it has a version of the North will rise again, the NWRA that I really like dragnet for me. I got the two disc set of, of dragnet or the bonus track version of dragnet, their second album. 
And the highlights for me weren't so much what was on the album itself, but the bonus tracks. I really love Second Dark Age and In My Area, among what we would call the early singles. I mentioned Extricate. Um, tracks like I'm Frank, Bill is Dead, uh, really highlights for me there. More recently, Fall Heads Roll came out after the uh, Real New Fall LP, Pacifying Joint, um, one of my favorite mo- of the most recent releases by the fall. Hex Induction Hour is a very popular fall album, um, a little bit lyrically challenging, a little bit controversial at the time. The classical in particular, um, you know, jeopardizing a record deal that they had with Motown because he uses language that Motown did not appreciate in the beginning of the song. It probably did not occur to Mark E. Smith that speaking his mind freely and just going on a freeform rant would, would cost him a, a potential record deal, but it did. And um, Hip Priest, an open attack on a music critic that, I, again, I think just a fascinating little piece of music history, if not necessarily um, an easy-to-listen-to song. I Am Curious Orange is another, uh, probably the last full-length LP I bought from the fall. Brand new, anyway, before branching over into compact disc. And um, it is the music to a ballet. So you've got a modern, kind of cutting-edge, avant-garde ballet choreographer who commissioned the fall to create the music for his production. This is one of those things where if you could jump in the time capsule, go back in time and see a a moment in music and art history, catching this show, even though I'm not a huge fan of ballet, I got a feeling I'd like this one. Um, New Big Prince is actually sort of a remake or a reinterpretation of the Hip Priest track from I Am Curious Orange. But to me, the, the highlight of that particular CD is Van Plague. Um, the song Van Plague dealing uh, essentially with the spread of HIV and dealing with it at the time, 1988-89, when we didn't have a lot of answers. So the song has a question mark on it, which is probably perfectly appropriate because the disease itself and the issues surrounding the disease certainly had a question mark around it as well. From Imperial Wax Solvent, among the tracks that I've got on my player are Alton Towers, Strange Town, and Senior Twilight Stock Replacer. Infotainment Scan, I'm going to say was probably the first CD I bought by the fall. The first opportunity, this is back maybe 1991, where a new release by the fall came out. I could have picked it up on vinyl, could have gone with CD. I went with CD instead. Um, The highlights here are It's a Curse, one of my favorite songs by the fall, and a good example of his vocal style. If you just wanted to go grab any one track by the fall and say, well, this is kind of what the fall is like, It's a Curse is not a bad way to go. Um, and I'm going to Spain. The song right before it on the CD is ironically the opposite end of the spectrum. Not at all what the fall's like. It's a schmaltzy song that was originally part of what at the time would have been Britain's version of American Idol or some sort of a on, an on TV talent show that the fall takes and almost word for word, line for line recreates. But the same lyrics coming out of Mark E. Smith's mouth just inherently sounds sarcastic. And I mean that in the best possible way. The Light User Syndrome has a great country music remake. Uh, Stay Away from the Old White Train is good, as is Spine Track, a very nice use of of his ex-wife, Rick Smith, back in the band. I mentioned Live at the Witch Trials being the first album that I picked up by the fall, and Frightened is the first song on the album, and for me, that song has a special place in my heart. If I've got a great relationship with the fall, it all comes down to the first five minutes of my experience of the group, which is Frightened. 
I'm also a huge fan of Two Steps Back. The real New Fall LP, formerly Country on the Click. Well, what in the heck is that title about? Well, Mark E. Smith had uh, gotten bitten early on, perhaps. This is uh, you know something like 10 years ago. Let me see if I can find the year for the album release. This is the U.S. release of an album that they had made that essentially got hacked. So they're putting the album out online, and before they could release it in 2003, 2002, 2003, somebody had come along, gotten a hold of the master copies, and sort of put them online. They got sort of napstered, for want of a better word. So rather than, you know, chuck it or throw a fit about it or, or get involved in a protracted legal situation, simply went back in the studio, recut the songs again, and put them out uh, with the name The Real New Fall LP, sort of implying that the bootleg sort of um, the leaked copies of those songs was somehow not the real album. So Country on the Click then sort of becomes not the real album, and The Real New Fall LP becomes the official release. And as an American, the official release is the only one that was made available to me. Um, Sparta FC is a uh, soccer hooligan anthem, really a wonderful track. Box Octosis, despite its use of, uh, of language taking the Lord's name in vain, really a, a, a song I really enjoy from them. A great mix of the music and the lyric there. And Portugal, kind of hearkening back in some ways to the Tom Waits storytelling style, uh, uh, a song that's designed to, to tell a complaining story, where they've actually recited a letter written by somebody complaining about the behavior of the band while on tour in Portugal the real new fall LP that album has a special place in, in my heart um, because it's the only time I've ever seen the band live. I live in the United States of America. There's not a lot of opportunity to see the fall in concert. I suppose if you lived in certain parts of England, you could almost take for granted seeing a fall concert, but here, not so much. They don't tour here often. And this particular tour for this particular release almost got canceled because Smith had broken his hip and was really unable to walk or stand for any extended period of time in the, in, you know, in the course of his recuperation. But rather than cancel the U.S. tour, which they ultimately did, Smith carried on, but instead of performing like he normally would have, uh, sort of leaning and hulking over, a, over a, a microphone stand, he did the entire concert sitting in what I can only describe as a masterpiece theater chair. So the band comes out, and they're typical rock band in terms of their positioning and their motion and their movement. Smith comes in you know, on crutches, sits down in this big leather huge chair with a small table in front of him that had two microphones on it and what turned out to be the playlist for the night and basically did the entire show from a sitting position. It wasn't the best concert I've ever seen. The performance was impacted both probably by his pain and by just how awkward it is to be a rock band on tour with a sitting lead singer who's not just a lead singer, but truly the leader of the band in every conceivable way. But it left a permanent impression on me. And Mountain Energy from that album, probably the best live performance that they did on that, on that particular tour. If I go just a little bit further ahead, I get to This Nation's Saving Grace, which is one of the albums that I almost have in its entirety. For most of these albums, I've picked and chosen favorite tracks and still have accumulated 257 tracks. But my favorite song on This Nation's Saving Grace is instrumental. It's the first track, Mansion. It's only a couple of minutes long. And I don't know what about the instrumental I like so much, but I like both it and the, uh, the reprise of it later, a song called Yarbles, where an acoustic version of the same song is performed with some lyrics. But really, there's rewards up and down 
the album This Nation's Saving Grace. I first had it as a cutout cassette. I bought uh, The Wonderful and Frightening World of the Fall and This Nation's Saving Grace for like three bucks a piece as a, as a closeout. But the song Paintwork threw me because it's got such a unique production style and such strange, intentional uses of yarbled sound in it that I was never certain until I bought the CD years later that the tape I had wasn't just messed up somehow. If you've heard the song Paintwork, the original studio version of This Nation's Saving Grace, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The Wonderful Frightening World of the Fall was the other one I bought there. To me, it came in second of the two, partly because most of the songs that I I think were probably um, quote-unquote hits I'd already heard before on a live, on a greatest hits album called A Sides, songs like Oh Brother and Creep, C R E E P. So that gives you a sense of exactly who Mark E. Smith is, at least who he is from the perspective of his musical output, and The Fall being probably an incredibly unsung band when you consider how many albums that they've released, how much influence they've had on other groups, and how rarely they get played on U.S. radio or, for that matter, MTV. If you were going to see any song by The Fall on MTV, uh, even during the heyday of MTV, it was most likely going to be the remake of The Kinks' Victoria than anything that was truly original to the band themselves. But I can remember, in college, going into the used record store and having the guy who ran that store pull out three or four albums by The Fall because he knew I liked them, and he got them in used, and he wanted me to see them before anyone else. How do you accumulate more than 20 albums, tapes, and CDs by a band that no one, no, none of your peers listen to, that most of the people who are running your local radio station have even heard of before? Well, it helps to have good connections with the used record store. It helps to have somebody running the aquarium of the music industry that you're in, understanding what a Placostomus is and what a Placostomus needs. Thanks for indulging me in this walk down memory lane for a discussion about used record stores and kind of what their place is, what they mean both in the formative years of somebody's music experience, where you can find an album for a dollar and and end up building an entire record collection around that, but also for the end of the life cycle of music, where if I'm not that enthused by Adele right now, I know that picking up her CD is just a matter of time, because at some point I'm going to run into a copy for a dollar, and for a dollar... It's definitely worth it, because for most people, it's been worth it at full price. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com, and the Podbean website for inappropriate conversations has show notes enabled, http colon slash slash inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Kevin McLeod.